0: Continuing our holiday tradition, this one's a little unusual. It's still in the fugitive realm because this guy was definitely a fugitive and he had a lot of aliases. I thought that was interesting. This is a, so, this guy is born in July of 1931. His name is Donald Perkins. So, Donald Perkins uh, is born in Oklahoma City and he ends up being raised by his dad's dad, his paternal grandfather. And Perkins goes into the United States Navy, but he receives a dishonorable discharge related to his activities in the United States Navy. Now, where we pick up with him is a little later in life, but they're there are some interesting things that like we should talk about along the way. So uh, Perkins had a lot of different jobs and he worked as a butcher, he worked as a salesman, he was a restaurant manager. At one point he was a vending machine repair man. and for the life of me, last night, I was thinking about that. Like, isn't there like a song that has the line vending machine repairman? Like, isn't, do you know what I'm talking about?
1: I don't. Uh...
0: I, I was stuck on this last night and I was like, should I Google it? Like, am I crazy? But it's uh, Shell Crow. Every day is a winding road. And uh-huh. it, uh, it opens with the line. I hitched a ride with vending machine repairman. Anyways you don't hear that every no, day. no
1: you're right that's funny um now i I'm familiar with that song but not to the extent that I recognize that
0: <laughs> I, I just stuck in my head when I was like reading through it so in 1956 in Massachusetts, Donald Perkins legally changes his, his last name he changes his last name to Webb uh, before 1979. Webb had all those jobs and he spent extended time in the Southwest U S along the West Coast and up in new England. His claim to fame in all of this is that he basically associates with criminals this whole time. Now he does get married. They have a son and they live together in Massachusetts, but leading up to that, Webb had convictions for burglary, possession of counterfeit money, uh, possession of a weapon and dangerous instruments, breaking and entering, uh, armed robbery, uh, armed bank robbery, grand larceny, uh, car theft. And in the mid-1970s, Webb did a two-year stint in a New York State prison. Okay, so he has a couple of people that we have to talk about. One of them is considered to be like his his main accomplice. In 1979, Webb had two accomplices that he was using to burgle suburban Albany homes. And the way that they did it is they posed as utility inspectors, specifically for sewer and water. The man who was helping him was a man named Frank Joseph Locke. And he and Webb end up getting arrested in Colony, New York. They get charged with attempted burglary, but they post their bails. Webb's bail was $35,000. They end up failing to appear in December 1979 from a court date. And that's really the last time that Webb uh, is apprehended, so to speak. With Frank Locke... So he's a little bit younger than Webb. Webb was born in 31. Locke was born in November of 1940. Um, He was very closely associated with Webb, and he was thought to be not just an accomplice, but also one of his friends. Frank Locke comes from Cranston, Rhode Island, and he had originally been linked to a Massachusetts-based gang that was responsible for a number of jewel thefts from residences and businesses in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. It was also widely believed that Frank Locke had ties to organized crime, not only in the New England area, but also in South Florida. The last known connection of Webb and Locke was in Allentown, Pennsylvania in July of 1980. There was a specific crime that happened there that we're going to talk about in a minute where the authorities believe that Frank Locke was with him. So Locke ends up being wanted by the FBI for interstate flight from justice, and he gets caught in South Miami, Florida, in May of 1982. He gets extradited back to New York, and he's convicted there of both the burglary and of jumping bail. But he gets paroled in November of 1985. And in February of 1986, He is convicted by a federal jury of a conspiracy to transport stolen property, uh, interstate or across state lines. And he ends up convicted of driving under the influence. And in June of 1996, he gets convicted of a parole violation. So he served time in federal prison. He gets released in October of 2000. He passes away at his home uh, just 19 days before his 77th birthday on November the 4th of 2017. So, he's not really our fugitive here. Our fugitive here is Donald Webb. And what Donald Webb did to become our fugitive of the day, so to speak, is I'll give you the FBI's description. The FBI considered Webb a master of assumed identities, and New York and Pennsylvania police have described Webb as an itinerant burglar well versed in the art of criminal impersonation. Webb had been identified by the FBI as an associate of the Patriarcha crime family. And that's basically what people would know as the Providence or the Boston Mafia. They were also known as the Office. He made a living robbing banks, jewelry stores, and high-end hotels up and down the East Coast. He would fence his goods through the mob up in Providence, Rhode Island. He was also associated with an organized crime outfit in the Miami area where it was believed that he had been fencing goods for some time. All right. Webb vanishes in December of 1980. Have you heard this story before about Webb, by the way?
1: Not before we started uh, talking about it. Yeah, so I –
0: this was a good opportunity. Um, We talked about uh, – I think it was probably back in October. We talked about the new Bedford Highway Killers, and we spoke with Maureen Boyle, who had written uh, the book Shallow Graves. That was about the new Bedford Highway Killer in Massachusetts. She also wrote another book called The Ghost, and The Ghost is – uh largely about uh Donald Webb so we wanted to take an opportunity to talk to her again uh to bring her on and to talk a little bit about her book and about the crime that Webb is sort of wanted for and i've used this little next uh <laughs> i'm i'm going to reuse the intro but everything after that is is a new interview it's just easier to keep it consistent that way. So we decided that we probably needed to consult uh, someone who was really familiar with this case and, and sort of how we get there is there's, there's not a lot of coverage, but I did find a really cool book and I was able to pull together some of the information about the author uh, and I ended up reaching out to her. This is uh, Maureen Boyle. She's an award-winning journalist who has been a crime reporter a crime reporter in New England for decades. Uh, she's earned a number of national and regional awards for her writing and reporting. Um, three separate times, she's been named the New England Journalist of the Year. Um, her first true crime book was Shallow Graves, The Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer, and it was honored by the Public Safety Writers Association. Um, She has numerous awards and recognitions for her work as a community reporter, for her feature writing, uh, for her investigative journalism, and she is currently the director of the journalism program up at Stonehill College. Uh, She lives in New England with her family. Um, She's been... uh, involved in this for many, many, many years. Her undergraduate degree is in journalism, but she got her master's in criminal justice. So I feel like uh, it's it's a good time to talk to her in this story. Maureen, if you want to say hello, the audience.
2: Hi, hi there. And thank you very much for having me on. And uh, thank you very much for helping to spread the word about this case.
0: I, I actually got interested in serial killings when I was pretty young. Um, I, I would I think I was around thirteen or fourteen, and with the Connecticut River Valley Killer, I had always wondered. I was, I had always wondered if there were cases from today that might be related backwards in time. Um, it, I actually started researching that particular case around the time that Maura Murray went missing in New Hampshire. <sighs> um, I could not believe that it hadn't been solved.
2: Well, there's another case, um, there's another case that's in Connecticut of, um, a serial killing case in Connecticut that's also unsolved.
0: Yeah. That case, is that the one that ties to, um, is it Molly Bish
2: up there? No, no. The Molly Bish case is interesting. They've had a couple of suspects in the Molly Bish case that's in, in, uh, Massachusetts, um, uh, the teenager uh, was a lifeguard and they've had a couple of suspects and one of them, I believe recently was ruled out, but, um, it, it's amazing in this small area up here that the number of suspected serial killers, uh, the number uh, that exist, it, 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 I'm, I'm very surprised.
0: So our, um, our first serial killer that we covered like for our season one was Israel Keyes. Um, He actually has ties to the Northeast U.S., so all of these sort of keep coming back around because Meg and I, every once in a while, we'll dig back into his case. And originally, we started in, I think, 2013 um, researching some of his... Uh, information but it was many years before we we felt comfortable putting it all out as at least five years maybe six years um, and we put it together the podcast because that was the the best way for us to express what we were seeing um, with his uh, with his case we've actually we think we've identified one of his first victims and that will eventually be a part of the show I have a lot of dogs in here. I don't know. Really, <laughs> do
1: you want to take care of your tap dancers here?
0: Yeah, uh, there's not a lot I can do right now because it's pouring here. So they're yeah, just looking yeah. at me like, "Let me out."
1: Well, I'm interested to know um, which uh, which Connecticut serial killer are you referring to? <laughs> yeah,
2: that, yeah, that, that's the thing. There's a couple of them. There, there was a case that was partially solved. but There was one. Um, in the Waterbury area, uh, those uh, serial killings out there. And then there was another serial killer uh, in recent years in Fairfield County. And but he, that was solved.
0: Well, the Campville murders, are they solved? Is it? And, I think that's Connecticut, right? Camp, the um, there's like five or six of them that... At one point, I thought they attributed them to William Howell, but I don't know that. For that was sure.
2: one. Yeah, that was one. And then there was another one, I believe. Yeah. After, so, after a while, it, it gets confusing of what it kind of <laughs> scary when you say, you know, which serial killing case are you talking about? Isn't that really bad? It is. It really is.
0: Well, I, I wanted to um, – I kind of wanted to talk to you in general about true crime for a minute um, and then, then get into the ghost because um, we've had you on the show before, so the audience is familiar with you now. Um, how like how did you decide, I'm going to get a, a master's in, in criminal justice?
2: Um, I was working for the Standard Times uh, in New Bedford, and at that time it was owned by Dow Jones uh, Ottaway. Uh, company. And they offered a program where they would pay half of your tuition for approved courses. And I always wanted to get a uh, master's degree and I was covering crime in the city and I approached the editor about a a particular course and he said, go for it. And then I took another one and then I took another one and a couple of the classes they didn't um, pay for, but I still Took them one at a time, uh, and I took some time off after my son was born. And the director of the program told me, "Hey, finish it up already." So that was that was it. It really helped uh, my reporting uh, of crime. I had a deeper understanding of what of investigations and. Uh, uh, and crime itself and, uh, victimology and pro parole and probation and, um, ways, uh, to attack crime. Uh, they went into, you know, the broken windows theories and all of that. Uh, and it, and it really helped me. It helped me, uh, write stories, uh, and write deeper stories, especially yeah. some of the psychology courses that I took, through the program where you're looking at, you know, the criminal mind and um, what is the, the psychology behind certain crimes.
0: I'm always curious if people end up uh, covering crime or, or you know, writing about crime because they wanted to or if it's something that happened that they just found out they were good at it and they just did it.
2: Well, I wound up covering when I when I well, when I first started uh, in journalism I was going to cover politics and I was working up in New Hampshire and as a doing everything as you do in New Hampshire and I still wanted to cover politics and I went to uh, move to New Bedford and I was covering you know just a local community and they offered me the crime beat and I said okay um, as long as I don't have to cover another selectman's meeting that's perfect Um, And I just stuck with it. I've always been fascinated with crime and mysteries and covering, um, law enforcement and crime is like every day you're looking at a new mystery and it, it makes you, makes you think. And it's fascinating because you're dealing with people and you're dealing with, um, human emotion. You're dealing with, um, people overcoming, uh, Obstacles, overcoming you know horrific tragedies, and coming out for the most part good. Um, some people are totally broken, and uh, but then you learn from what uh, what they went through, and people learn from you know from tragedy. It it's been a fascinating and uh, very humbling uh, covering crime.
0: Yeah, I I feel the same way about it. I I did realize at some point there's always going to be an audience for it, which is both f- you know fascinating in, in terms of job security, but also a little scary in terms of uh, people's predilections. Uh,
2: yeah, I, yeah, I've I've seen some you know like really tasteless uh, things online from um, people who are you know interested in true crime, and it's a like, you know, it, it's not a genre. It's a genre when you try to pigeonhole it. But true crime is people's lives and it's tragedy and it's victims. Um, and sometimes even the perpetrators are victims if you dig deeper into their backgrounds. And I really think that the only way you can solve crime is to understand crime and understand why people do things. Uh, but not to hold criminals and killers up as, you know, something to be worshipped, you know, like the people that were, uh, in in a way, worshipping Charlie Manson, Charles Manson. uh, That's one of the most
0: baffling things to me, by the way.
2: This is, you know, a man who brutally murdered people, you know, directed people to brutally murder people. And to be a follower, you know, decades later, I don't get it. I, that shows that people just don't quite understand the brutality of of these types of murders. I, I just don't understand people, the followers of of people that are doing, you know, life and um, even to this day, those that are fascinating fascinated with uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, which is now in the news because of the new Netflix show. Um, it's chilling what he did. And I uh, I think there were a lot of lessons learned in terms of the investigation and some of the proverbial balls that were dropped uh in that case. But I, I couldn't be fascinated by, by him. I think that you know, people like that, you have to learn from them and learn to how you can prevent cases like that.
0: One of our angles on some things is we kind of turn on the audience a little bit—the audience of true crime, not our audience specifically—but if you look at true crime as sort of a, it's it's sort of its own niche industry at this point, and we don't really understand the interactions between people online sometimes, um, like how people will, you know, they, they seem to forget that behind these stories, which you've mentioned in the past with us there are lives and there are humans and there are souls. Yes,
2: yeah, it, It's not, it's not a, it's not a story. I mean, I, I tell store, I tell their story, but it's not a story. It's not fiction. It's real. And these are things that horrendous things that have really, really happened. And it's okay to be fascinated by them but you have to also put it in perspective and understand uh, how, how to prevent them and how to protect yourself. Um, and you know that's one of the things, uh, I mean, there's been some studies and talk on the issue of why an awful lot of women are fascinated by true crime. And part of it may also be that uh, women are learning how to protect themselves when they are uh, listening to uh true crime podcasts like yours are reading books about true crime, they're seeing the mistakes, and I say mistakes in quotes, um, that the victim may have uh made that uh perhaps made them a, an easy prey uh to a to a killer, particularly to a stranger, or even in the, the domestic violence cases, um Okay. What what do you look for in those types of cases? How do you protect yourself?
0: Well, that's a good point. And we brought you back on for the holiday shows. Uh, we're doing a series um, over the holidays where uh, what we do here is we we run more episodes than usual because a lot of people are traveling or, or you know possibly in like sort of unknown places, uh, so they have more time to listen. And we've noticed that like we get a lot of listeners uh, between. Uh, it, basically it starts right after Thanksgiving and it goes all the way through the new year. Um, our audiences spike. So we have decided, you know, we put out more episodes and our theme this year, um, if you would call it that, or the, the types of cases we're covering are fugitives, uh, people who either escaped from prison or they escaped from being caught for a long time. And we thought of you, uh, when we were prepping this series, uh, because of your second book, um, Uh, which is not holiday themed, but uh, your second book is called the ghost. And uh, the ghost is interesting, uh, especially based on what we were just talking about. Um, You don't think of, of, I don't personally, I don't think of many people that would, should be like more secure and more safe than the, you know, chief of police of a town. Um, And that's exactly what your story, the ghost is about, uh, it's uh, about Chief of Police Gregory Adams, um, and his run-in with uh, with one of those fugitives. Uh, I was curious how did you um, how did you come across this story originally?
2: Um, it was shortly after uh, I finished uh, "Shallow Graves: A Hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer," and you know everything was edited, everything was done. Uh, it was, uh, Everything was being prepped for publication, so there was downtime. And of course, it's almost like giving birth—you forget all the agony that went into it. And I'm like, oh, so I wonder what I should do for the next project. And, <laughs> and, and uh, this case uh, concluded uh, with the, uh, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I remember parts of this case. And, uh, that's when I started, uh, digging into it. Um, this is a, a case that I'm in Massachusetts. Um, the, and this, this is where the case ended, but the, uh, case started in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, which is a, a small community in Western Pennsylvania, a lovely, lovely historic town. It is like a, a, a storybook town. It really is, uh, it was ni- uh, nineteen. It was nineteen eighties. The uh, the chief, right? It was shortly before Christmas. Um, There's only two full time uh, police officers on the Saxenburg, uh department, uh, the police chief and another office full time officer. Every, everyone else was part time. Then it was around three o'clock in the afternoon. In December, a couple weeks before Christmas, and the chief was on routine patrol, although cops will tell you there's no such thing as routine um, anywhere. And he pulled over a vehicle in the Agway parking lot, and the next thing anyone knew, he was crying for help behind a house next to the parking lot, and he had been shot, uh, and he was fatally wounded. The person that he pulled over took off, and it took about a day or two before they were able to positively identify the killer. Um, the killer left behind a driver's license. It was uh, The name on the driver's license was uh, an alias that uh, the man used. His name was Donald Webb. And he just vanished. He seemed to have vanished. Donald Webb was from... Uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, and the law enforcement thought it would be really easy to uh, to find him. Now they come up here, go looking for him. Donald Webb was the uh, best way to describe him, a low- level mobster. He hung around with a, a group of guys at uh, law enforcement called the Fall River Gang. They uh, did a lot of robberies, but not, you know, hold them up robberies. They were very sophisticated. Um, burglaries for that time, including, you know, cutting holes in the tops of buildings and going, going into, uh, jewelry stores, that sort of thing. They did all of their j- jobs outside of the area, um, in the mid Atlantic states, they did some in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, nothing in their own backyard. So once they left, there's no, t- they had no ties to the area and he just disappeared uh, for, for decades. Uh, and I found that fascinating in terms of, this is a guy that was on the FBI's most wanted list, and even with all the power of the FBI, he still eluded authorities. Um, and so I started looking into what happened in the case, and the story behind the story. Uh, and I talked to the original investigators, uh, including those that were with the chief in his last dying moments who responded to the scene. Uh, I talked to the chief's family and many people in the community. And what, what's interesting about Saxonburg is over the years, they never, ever, ever forgot chief Adams. Every year they held a memorial for him um, every year. They, they made sure that his name was not forgotten. And that was something that was very, very touching. And, you know, for, when I went down to Saxonburg a couple of times, people remembered him. Uh, they remembered talking to him. They remembered meeting him. Um, they remembered everything that the town went through when he was killed because this is something that does not happen in a town that size. And, uh, the book was more than I found turned out to be more than just the hunt for the killer. It is also a story about a community and a community's loss, a family's loss and a community's loss, uh, when something like this happens and, and what happens when it's, when it's finally resolved and how they can finally rejoice through sadness.
0: Yeah this was a community. It was only like a like a maybe 1000 or 1500 <laughs> people. Yeah, I knew it was small. I knew they were heavily affected. Now, this guy uh, when you say decades like that's a that's a literal thing with uh with web. Yeah. He he had vanished and stayed he he really hmm, he really never resurfaces. No. I guess without yeah. like giving away like a lot of the ending. Yeah. Um he he never fully resurfaces. He stays uh, through the years they think they keep finding his body. Like there's there's different people that um that they find and, and they they can link him back to Webb. You know, so there was a, a man in Detroit who had been using Webb's name and yeah. Uh, was around, uh, around, the, uh, right, around the right age and apparently had used his uh, social security number. Yes, that's the
2: best. He uses, his guy uses Donald Webb's social security number, um, apparently not realizing that the guy is <laughs> on the FBI's most wanted list, you know. Cheers. That's the, the uh, you know, talk about a dumb crook.
0: Mistakes were made.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. And then there was also Donald Webb, who apparently was working for the, working was an FBI employee, and that was also, you know, <laughs> one of their other. Like, uh, hmm, let's make sure we have his middle initial very clearly uh, marked here. Uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, weird things in the case. Uh, this was one of the strangest cases ever. What, what is most interesting about, the one of the more interesting things, though, uh, I joined the Standard Times in 1984, and uh, this case happened in 1980. Uh, when I started covering cops in 85 at the Standard Times, no one in law enforcement was mentioning Donald Webb or that there was They were searching for Donald Webb, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Webb had a stepson who worked for the New Bedford Police Department for a period of time, and then he left. Uh, And, you know, the reporters of the Standard Times would sometimes mention his stepson in the whole story behind why he left, and then uh, almost in passing go, yeah, his stepfather Killed a cop, I think, someplace in Pennsylvania or the Midwest or someplace like that, and then they would just drop it. So I always assumed that Webb was either in prison or he was dead, um, not that he was on the, you know, most wanted list. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, and, because I would have been all over that. I was that type of a reporter, and I, I to this day, I could just kick myself for. It. But there was no one was talking about about him, no one at all, uh, at least not publicly. And when I started doing research on the book and I was going through the microfiche of all the local newspapers around the time of the, the initial search for Webb, there was nothing in any of the local papers about Donald Webb uh, until much later, months later, and there was a small blurb in Fall River Herald about uh, that web FBI sent, uh, sent out a press release saying that uh, they, uh, someone matching Webb's description was seen in Fall River. That was it. Huh. That was it. So if you didn't go to the post office back then and look at the most wanted uh, posters that were in there, the average person would not have known Donald Webb was wanted by the FBI. You wouldn't have known if you were sitting one booth away from him in the diner. You wouldn't know if he was sitting across, sitting at the bar with you because this was also a uh, time when there was no social media. Um, and I would like to think that if this happened today, it would be all over and we would be, uh, you'd be seeing his face on billboards and on Facebook, on Twitter and, um, uh, and everywhere. Yeah. That that there was nothing and that's what I found really really surprising that how little there was. It was you know you contrast it with Pennsylvania where this was, you know, p- huge headlines in all of the papers and even the the Philadelphia paper and the Pittsburgh paper were talking, you know, front page headlines for for months and months and months and months and up here where the killer supposedly is from and they believe likely fled to, there's nothing at all, Uh, which is just absolutely shocking to me.
0: Yeah, and that's the other thing. It was such a small area. Like, if you look at that section of Massachusetts, that would have been huge news for that area.
2: I, I agree with you. I really do. I I, I agree with you on that. And, th- and that's what I don't understand. And when I've asked uh, members of law enforcement who were you know active during that time, um, they said, well, it was who was in charge. You know, it was it was really a Pennsylvania State Police case, um, not a Massachusetts case. Uh, and then it became, well, it was really an FBI case. So I think part of it may be no one wanted to step on someone else's toes in talking to the media. I'm not sure. But, I mean, that was an era where reporters were, at least local reporters, were much more aggressive than they are today uh, because there were more of them. And the reporters, at least at the Standard Times, I know were, Very, very aggressive, and I would have expected, you know, huge stories um, in the standard times in particular. And I I was just surprised that there wasn't.
0: Well, this was the time. uh, One of the things we've talked about is there's this era of the 80s where there's the super cop stories, and that's when police officers started getting, like, book deals and movie deals (laughs) for being on a major case. Mm -hmm. Um, This was the time of the super scoop like the way you made your name as a reporter would have been to have some of these bizarre twists and turns that happen in this story, like where, you know, there's this dead body that's been using his name. And there's this letter that gets written to William Sessions, who at the time was the FBI director. Uh, It pops up where somebody calls into America's most wanted and claims to be him. These are things that, if any of them turned out to be true would make somebody's career as a writer.
2: Yeah. And it was, um, there was none of it. I'll tell you the Pennsylvania papers uh, were very, very uh, on top of the case. Uh, The Butler Eagle in particular, uh, the Butler Eagle is the local paper there. And I'm I'm very glad I got to uh, read all of uh, their stories. And also I now subscribe to the Butler Eagle, uh, it, it's a wonderful local paper. It is truly a um, a community asset. But they covered everything um, you can imagine. While those that are in Massachusetts knew nothing about uh, the finer points of the case, or even the broader points of the case, which was very troubling because that's where I think they would have gotten uh, most of their leads from. And I think whoever decided not to loop in the local media or really pursue that avenue that I think was a fatal flaw in the the case and, and searching for Donald Webb.
0: So how did the story kind of wrap up in terms of the timeline with when you decided to write about it?
2: Well, after, uh, after shallow graves uh, came out, uh, I started making some phone calls and, I, I talked with a uh, former colleague who uh during the 80s worked at the Fall River Herald and I p- definitely picked his brain uh quite a bit about what Fall River was like and I you know did FOIA requests with the FBI uh good point to make to people it takes forever for the FBI to uh respond to, well, they respond to FOIA requests immediately. You don't get the information uh, immediately. It takes a really, really long, long time. And it can be very
0: expensive, yes. Yeah.
2: Uh, So I had to keep on narrowing uh, what I was looking for because there's no way I could spend the amount of money needed to get the full um, case that spanned over, you know, 30 years, 30 plus years. And I knew exactly what I was, what information I was looking for. Um, so when I was able to narrow that down, I got some interesting, um, pieces of information, but, um, I, I just was starting to interview people, uh, people, uh, former investigators and current investigators. But I started with the, those that were, uh, first at the scene, uh, family members, um, the investigators, both the FBI investigators and state police investigators who uh, worked on the case back in 1980. Um, and then the investigators, uh, modern day investigators, so to speak, th- those that helped to wrap up the case. Um, and it was just a, f- a fascinating, um, fascinating story. And, it, th- and the bottom line in this case is that It was finally ultimately solved because uh, the FBI, Pennsylvania State Police, and Massachusetts State Police all worked together. Uh, They couldn't have solved it without each other. And that was, I think, the biggest lesson in this case, I think, for for law enforcement is that you you can't do it alone. They have to draw on The expertise that each agency has, uh, both legally and uh, and philosophically, they they all each each one brings in different resources, and it was really good to see how well they uh, they played together, so to speak.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it's sort of like in some ways. There are aspects of the story that are the opposite of Shallow Graves because you have the one like focused in on one guy kind of situation instead of all these sprawling suspect lists. Yes. But but you still have this like really heart-wrenching story from you know a small town, basically.
2: Yes, and um and, and that's the the thing that really grabbed me. From the minute I I stepped foot in Saxonburg, what a lovely community, Um, what a beautiful community. And to have something this horrible happen is just unfathomable. And I think that's what really just shook everyone in the community. People joke about Saxonburg that Saxonburg will have a parade for a parade. Um, because they always have community events, uh, they have pet parades, they have, and the entire town comes out for everything. And it, it's just a very family-oriented, uh, very sweet place. Um, and that contrast of you know murder comes to your comes to Main Street and, you know this lovely place is just shakes people and that really did uh did fascinate me and how really none of us are safe
0: yeah i i i get that feeling from these stories too all the time like i i feel like i make myself a little paranoid and anxious and i'm looking over my shoulder more than i should
2: and you should and you really should because i uh The thing is, if you live in a small town or in a rural uh, community, you think you're safe because there's no one around. But perhaps you're less safe because there's no one around. Um, When we were looking for, my husband and I, when we were looking for houses, and he was looking at some places that were in, you know, semi-rural areas. And I'm like, nope, 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 nope. I want to live someplace that, if I scream, someone will hear me. And, you know, that's always been my rule. And, and that's, that's worked well for me. Not that I've ha- had to That's a good rule. Uh, but if you get into, a, I think, a false sense of security when you are living in an area that... Um, where nothing... you think a crime can't touch you because it's not out uh, on your doorstep. But sometimes it just comes knocking. Right, it, and it's it, better I, to
1: be prepared.
2: Yes. Yep, yes, you do uh, you always have, I think it's a good thing to always be looking over your shoulder. And Did you
0: be- have any one thing that you took away from this story related to like the looking over your shoulder that you can share?
2: <laughs> oh, about about this story in particular? Yeah. It is yeah. um, I think the there was one lesson I think law enforcement learned is that you know, the, the chief, when he stopped the vehicle, he did not call in the plate or call in the license. Um, and that is uh, perhaps the one thing that law enforcement after that in the community, no matter how small the community is, this is what you must do every single time. Uh, and it was very unusual for him because he was a... An instructor in the academy, and he would be telling uh, officers, "Make sure that you, you know, call in right away." So, why he didn't call in the plate number is um, unclear. Uh, perhaps he just let his guard down, and because he was he was only like a block and a half away from the police station when this happened. Um, so, the, I think that there was a lesson there that don't let your guard down, no matter where you are.
0: Yeah, he wasn't wearing his vest either.
2: No, he was not.
0: That part, like, that sticks with me because that's a decision that you can make, like, for a number of reasons to not put that on. It can be uncomfortable that day. You could have something else to do, and you just want to, you know, that cost him his life in some ways.
2: Yes, it did. Um, There was conflicting stories of of why he wasn't wearing his vest. The one that uh, I believe was that he had to send it back because it was the wrong size. So, oh,
0: I didn't. Uh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. That's wild.
2: That was uh, that was one of the issues there. But it it is um, the uh, the case involving uh, Chief Adams also makes it very very clear that you know c- crime can happen anywhere, um, and even law enforcement are not they're not immune to random acts of violence even even in a small 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 community um and of course in this this case uh, law enforcement also you know, really focused on Donald Webb's wife who lived in New Bedford at the time and then moved to Dartmouth because they were convinced that she knew where he was even though she denied it and you know they followed her around and there was a couple of humorous uh, situations with the uh, the cops, uh, FBI agents and state police agents uh, following her through the, the city and on the highways. Uh, she was very good at eluding um, any tales. And they were,
0: Can you imagine what her life must have been like?
2: I can't. I can't. You know, She was a, a young widow when she met uh, Donald Webb uh, in, a, in a time, during a time when... Now, it was very difficult for women. She had a, a small child. Um, so she did not have it easy at the time when she met him. But she was very, very loyal to him because even when they were together before the murder uh, and he was in, in prison for other robberies, he was, you know, she was always there waiting for him. She was very, lo- very, very loyal. I do wonder what her life would have been like if she hadn't met him.
0: That's what I was just getting ready to say. I was going to say, you know, I think if, if that's one of those situations where if you turn left instead of right, might have been a better whole existence. Yeah. Well, so this is the ghost. Do you, uh, Meg, do you have any more questions for Maureen?
1: Well, I do, but um, you mentioned you didn't want to give away the ending, so you may have to cut this out. <laughs> um, <laughs> Was so his his remains were discovered. Um, and uh, I know that he was taken off the FBI's most wanted list in 2007, and then his remains were discovered in 2017. And I guess I think you may have sort of explained it. Um, because she was um, uh, being tailed or being looked at as possibly um, helping him. Uh, did she bury him? Yes, and so he did, twice.
2: Did you 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 have to read the scene of that? Okay, and you you will just be. Um, you have to read it. It's amazed. you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. You will be amazed. You will just go. Oh my God! Uh, there's a there's a. It's detailed because I uh, detailed from the. Her interview with the uh, the FBI and the state police. Um, they, you have to read it. Well, I no. certainly
1: will. I, it just it was fascinating to me because I thought, wow, like because uh, you would think, well, once um, you know he died, she would just free herself from it. Um, but I will, I will read it. Uh, John kind of sprung this on me. um,
3: I did, I am so sorry.
2: (laughs) But when you you have to, when you read that, you will go, oh my God, because I didn't believe it. And I had asked the FBI agent, you know, did she have help? And he goes, no. And he goes, I don't think so, based on the way she, some of the things she said and how she said it, no, she...
0: Well, I, I did spring this on Meg, but I just I, I had forgotten um, when I was setting everything up to talk to you, I I had forgotten that that was also your story, and I uh, I I knew of Ghost, but I had it separate in my mind. Yep. Um, so I, when I realized that we were going to have a, a chance to chat with you, and we were. Covering Donald Webb. Also, like I don't think there's that many spoilers in this story. People can read the Wikipedia article. It's not the same as the book. The book yeah. is so much more interesting. And I will definitely make sure that Meg has a copy of Ghost you, from Amazon it, in her stocking. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, 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 and it's a quick read. It, it's not as, as long as Shallow Graves. Um, and, and I wrote it during the pandemic. And it was... I yeah, wrapped it up during the pandemic, and it was uh, it was uh, an enlightening, uh, an enlightening research, and enlightening to write.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. Where uh, where can people learn more about you? I know we can find your books at Barnes and Noble's and Amazon, right?
2: Yep. Um, my uh, website is Maureen Boyle um, Maureen I am also on uh, Twitter, which is, and I always forget what, uh, what my Twitter handle is. I always have to look it up because yeah, it's uh, Maureen E. Boyle 1, um, and I'm also on Facebook. There's uh, two pages uh, up on Facebook, one for Shallow, shallow Graves on uh, hunt for the New Bedford Highway serial killer, but it's Shallow Graves colon, not semicolon. The semicolon page is run by the uh, one of the victims' uh, brothers. Uh, and where else? Uh, there's also, I can be reached at um, shallowgravesabook.com. So there's lots of ways to reach out to me. I'm all over the place. And, <laughs> and on, on uh, my website, the writer website, I also have a blog that I occasionally talk about crime and uh, particularly the New Bedford case and anything else that comes to mind.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on with us again. It is great to talk to you and, and we would love to have you back with whatever your next big story is.
2: Oh, I would love to come back and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: It's almost hard to talk about the rest of Webb's story without giving away some of the ending, but I will say um, that the book does a much better job than what I'm about to do to wrap this up. What did you think of the case of Greg Adams?
1: Well, it's one of their like legendary nightmare stories, right?
0: It really Um, is.
1: It fuels like all of, the underlying beliefs of law enforcement and their families with the thoughts of like, you know, any day you go out to work, you could uh, not come home. Right.
3: Yeah. And And
1: it, it was really, it's really sad.
0: It is. And I, this case is interesting in a lot of ways. I thought we'd sort of like, just talk about like the bare bones version of that for people who might not read the book. Although I will encourage you to read, the book, the ghost. Um, cause it's a, it's a very unique look and some of the stuff that Marine has in here is not going to be found anywhere on the internet. Uh, it's only in there. And she's really done her homework. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not just fantastic to have her on. It's fantastic to have her available to us as a resource for this information.
1: And it is a complete story, which, um, is more rare than not in, you know, true
0: crime cases. Yeah. I wanted to talk about that since we talked to her and now like kind of in the wrap up, I do want to give people sort of, you know, it's Christmas. Here's your Christmas crime gift. Um, This is some of the wrap up of Donald Webb's story. When Greg Adams was found, there was evidence at the scene that directly implicated Donald Webb. Uh, There was a 25 caliber Colt pistol. There was blood at the scene that was his blood type. And there was a New Jersey driver's license that had the name on it, Stanley John Portis, which was an alias of Webb. And they also filmed some – that name is also the name of his wife, Lillian Webb's prior late husband. Is that the right order? Like I think so. And that was just some of the evidence that was found at the scene. But Portis had died in 1948. I thought this was hilarious. He among the aliases that they mentioned for uh for Donald Webb, we have so we have Donald Eugene Perkins as his birth name, Donald Eugene Webb is his official name, but he also went by A. D. Webb, Donald Eugene Pierce, John S. Portis, Stanley John Portis, Bev B-E-V Webb, Eugene Bevlin, B-E-V-L-I-N, Webb. And then he just flip-flopped some stuff around from those names. And he came up with Eugene Donald Webb and Stanley Webb. Those are the known aliases of this guy. That's a lot of aliases.
1: It really is.
0: Webb is believed to have been in Saxonburg the day that everything went down with Chief Greg Adams uh, for a planned Burglary of a jewelry store and the guy that I mentioned before the interview Frank Locke was thought to be there now Adams gun was found about seven miles away from where uh, his shooting took place along a, a road in Winfield Township Pennsylvania all six uh, bullets from the weapon had been fired now there was a white mercury cougar which Webb had rented and that was allegedly used as the getaway car. Two weeks later, it was found abandoned at a Howard Johnson's motel in Warwick, Rhode Island. And there were significant amounts of O-type blood under the steering wheel that suggested that Webb had been wounded um, in a struggle with Adams. And more, the, the belief was, if, if you read online, uh, that that Adams had shot him. So Webb gets named as the main suspect in the killing of Adams, and there's this nationwide manhunt that begins. He's charged in absentia with murder, attempted burglary, and an unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. On December 31st, 1980, there's a federal arrest warrant issued for him. And Webb was named as the 375th fugitive to be placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. He had strong ties to Fall River and New Bedford, Massachusetts, and the last confirmed sighting of him was made there by an anonymous tipster in July of 1981. It was reported to the Boston FBI office, but Webb had fled by the time the investigators arrived. There were later unconfirmed sightings of Webb or men resembling him in Costa Rica, Canada, Washington, and Massachusetts. In January of 1990, FBI director William Sessons received a letter postmarked January 23rd, written by someone claiming to be Webb, asking for forgiveness from Adams' family. The letter seemed to suggest that he might surrender to authorities, but only if he could talk directly to John Walsh, host of the TV show America's Most Wanted. Walsh said on his show that the FBI's evidence technicians examined the letter and believed it might be authentic. Handwriting tests, though, were inconclusive. Since then, they've been discounted as uh, accurate forensic evidence anyway. So handwriting tests are no longer considered admissible in court, just so everybody knows. They're generally not a super reliable thing. On April 1st, 1990, a man claiming to be Webb called John Walsh back. But when asked questions to confirm his identity, he was unable to name two of Webb's closest relatives. So the call ends up dismissed as an April Fool's joke.
1: How can people um, do things like that?
0: That's not so weird. Don't, that's there's several things that have happened on television and and radio and stuff through the years that I'm just like, you have to be like, pretty sick and twisted yourself to imitate that or whatever. After more than 18 years on the list, on September 14th, 1999, Webb was noted as the fugitive with the longest tenure on the FBI 10 Most Wanted List, surpassing the previous record held by Charles Lee parent in april of 2005 there was an unidentified man in detroit that was found using Webb's name age and social security number detroit police tracked the address to a burned out house in a poor section of town authorities considered this a case of identity theft however unusual it might be and i, I mentioned that with maureen but that's the weirdest thing isn't it
1: i bet that guy had like no idea
0: he thought he was using. He thought he was using something Normal else.
1: Normal person.
0: I can't um, believe that anybody would purposefully use like a top ten most wanted fugitive.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna have to go with no. I just think that they um, somehow got a hold of it.
0: That's so weird. I mean, obviously, you know, the guy didn't make it, so he didn't use it for long. I guess. Uh, I guess we don't know how long he used it, but in April 2005, uh, that that gentleman was found. Uh, dead. I, I keep wondering Are if that's some sure? kind of setup. Wait do you mean?
1: Are you sure he was dead?
0: Wait, no, he wasn't dead.
1: They just huh. found the guy, and they didn't identify him. Or there's not. They
0: just did You're right. It's not that he was dead. It was a, okay. You're right. I, I said that wrong. Um, that's going to be a fun section to edit. Right
1: it here. may be. It may be. No, we, it's we not. Can start over if you
0: want. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'll figure it out. So on March 31st of 2007, the FBI kicked Webb off of the 10 Most Wanted list. He ends up being replaced with Shantae Henderson. So Webb had held the record of being on the FBI's Most Wanted list longer than any other fugitive until 2010. And that's when Victor Emmanuel Jarina uh, ended up uh, surpassing his record. Um, and he is in our Christmas pile of stuff. Although Webb was still a fugitive considered armed and dangerous by the FBI, the lack of leads led some investigators to believe that it was possible that Webb had died. On June 1st of 2017, Mary Ann Adams Jones, who is the police chief that we're talking about, Greg Adams, widow, who had remarried, filed a lawsuit for civil dam- for civil damages against Donald Eugene Webb, his wife Lillian Webb, and Webb's stepson, Stanley Webb. FBI investigators announced that in 2016 they had discovered a secret room hidden behind a closet in the basement of Lillian Webb's home. This room had been added when Lillian purchased the home. And then agents discovered a cane inside the home. And they believed that that cane was probably used by Webb after he got shot in the leg by Greg Adams. On June 15th of 2017, the FBI ends up releasing newly acquired photographs of Webb taken in the 1970s. They hope that these would aid in gaining the public's assistance in either capturing Webb or locating his remains. Lillian Webb ends up facing prosecution for harboring harboring a criminal. So she arranges a confession to the police and the FBI, and she tells them that she had sheltered Webb and that she says that he had a stroke, near the end of his life and that she had been taking care of him and that he had been treated for four weeks in Toby Hospital in Wareham, Massachusetts, under an assumed name for a compound fracture to his leg in 1980 after the murder. So they sort of started to develop this timeline of what happened to him after Greg Adams was killed. So she leads the FBI to human remains that are buried on the grounds of her Dartmouth home. And on July 17th of 2017, the remains are identified by FBI forensic investigators as belonging to Donald Webb. So the investigators believe that Webb had died in 1999 after having suffered several strokes. And if you look at it just from an age perspective, it's a little weird, but he was born in 1931. So, you know, he would have turned 70 in 2001. He's in his 60s. State police documents said that Webb had lived for nearly 19 years, hidden by his wife in the two different houses where she lived at at the time, and this comes up in in the book. But i, I was just wondering, like, what did you think of this story overall?
1: I it's crazy.
0: <laughs> it really, is crazy. I, I'm so glad we like decided to do like these fugitive stories. I now he's not an escapee per se.
1: Well, he escaped. um, Well, okay, so I just want to be clear. He did jump bail.
0: Yeah, he had done that previously. Yes.
1: Right, and so that's probably actually what led to him shooting uh, Adams to begin with.
0: Yeah, the fear of being caught and returned. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right and so i mean it, it fits as far as being a fugitive i don't know how like seriously you know they were looking for him at the point in time where he had bonded out and not returned for his court date right he was just yeah. a failure to appear plus the the charges he'd already had at that point but he was uh he was scared to death to go in to jail, yeah. And that's what led – he was driven by fear. And the way that um, I've sort of seen the story laid out, if he had just been calm, uh, he probably would have driven away from that situation.
0: So that was one of the reasons I thought it was cool to get sort of an inside perspective from someone who had done a lot of research there. Is you get a feel that that area was really small. Um, the police force was really small. And I don't think anything – I don't think anything would have happened to Webb if he would have just not jumped the gun and killed that guy.
1: Right, because uh, I believe was it did he roll through a stop sign?
0: It was just a routine traffic stop. I think Maureen said what it was, but I don't I'm kind of missed it there.
1: Well, whatever it was, it wasn't serious enough to warrant any of this.
0: Yeah. It's I mean these cases are kind of all over the place. But up to that point, he wasn't really a, a killer per se. Not well, that we know of.
1: I, and I don't think he was either because um, the the reason I say that is um, he, he did live sort of, you know, he wasn't incarcerated, right? But he was in his own special kind of prison, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, he definitely made his fate way worse than jail would have been, I think.
1: And so I think that he probably had a whole lot of regret because, I mean, he would have gone to jail for the rest of his life because what he did was essentially, I mean, it was first-degree murder, right? I think that he did have a lot of regret, though, because he he ruined his own life. I mean, not that anybody that commits first-degree murder doesn't ruin their own life, but, like, even though he escaped justice, I mean, he just, he lived in hell, right?
0: Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CrimeXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at True or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-365 five five nine three you can also reach us at gmail at truecrimexs at com, and you can check out our website at com. we'll see you next time Have holiday plans that you do like every year, like traditions?
2: Uh, not really, just your, your standard traditions of uh, holidays, you know, getting, pulling out the tree, uh, being with family. That's, uh, we,
0: what we, that's sort of what we do here.
2: Yeah, we, and we also have, uh, my husband's family has a, a holiday party that everyone gathers. Uh, which is very nice, and it's a it's a fun time to see everyone. So you get to see people at um, from infants all the way up to you know elderly. So <laughs>
0: that's my favorite part.
2: Yeah, it, it's just to see people able to relax and talk and eat.
0: That's what I was going to ask. Do you cook or do you eat?
2: Oh, I Ooh. don't cook. I am what probably probably the worst cook in the world. <laughs> um, my husband is a superb cook, and although I've told him I think he's a great cook, because um, he does it for self-preservation, because <laughs> I'm so bad. Yeah, I'm
3: not.
1: I'm not a great cook. I. It's not. It's not something I've ever been interested in. So I completely understand.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm really good at microwaving. Yeah, I I'm really good at t- at. At ordering at a restaurant. Yes.
3: <laughs> <And> <laughs> Me too. That's,
2: that's uh, about it. Um, other than that, it's not, not good at all. I burn things. I forget they're on the stove. Um, it's just, it's not pretty.
1: Yep. I am right there with you.
0: <laughs> so my last two questions. Um, do you have any pets?
2: We have two cats. Uh, we've got one that we got sort of by default when one of our cats went missing and we were searching for her and we thought we found her. Uh, someone posted about a found cat and we go down there and it wasn't her, but they were going to send the cat to the shelter, so we brought her home and we've had her ever since. And then we got another cat um, as a kitten, uh, and we got him to keep her company because we felt so bad that she was in the house all by herself when we were working. Uh, and it turns out she absolutely hated this cat because uh, he would follow her around and try to play with her and fight with her and do whatever kittens do. And, uh, <laughs> uh, since then, they it's been 10 years and they still hate each other. Uh, there's no, you know, crowing up together before the fireplace or anything like that. Um, they're, you know, um, one's on one side of the house, the other one's on the other side of the house. Um, you yeah, know, we've got two cats. <laughs> and they are, they are, <laughs> But they are not rippers, which is a good thing. Uh, they don't rip the furniture, which I'm very pleased at. Other things, not so much.
0: <laughs> got it. <laughs> So uh, what is, like, what's coming next for you in terms of writing? Is there anything, any big secrets you're working on? You don't have to tell me what they are, but just that you're, yeah, like, headed I, down the path.
2: Oh, yeah. I, I'm working on another book. It's uh, based in Pennsylvania, and it involves the disappearance of a 15-year-old girl. Uh, and that's, a, I'm about 95% done with that.
0: Ooh, well, we, we definitely want to have you back when you do that. And if you decide you want to do like a, some kind of podcast series or something around that, I'm totally interested in helping you.
2: Okay, that sounds good.
4: Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimo everybody knows some turkey and some mistletoe can help to make the season bright tiny time with their eyes all aglow, we'll find it hard to sleep tonight. They know that Santa's on his way, he's loaded lots of toys and goodies. On his sleigh And every mother's child Is gonna spy To see if a reindeer Really know how to fly And so I'm offering simple friends two kids from one to 92 although it's been said many times many ways Merry Christmas